You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past, the podcast that delves into lesser-known histories and explores their relevance to modern issues. So speaking of modern issues, Crystal, what's been going on with extreme history this week? Well, we've had a busy week, as we usually do, but we have been gearing up for walking tours. Ah, walking uh, tours. Walking tour season is, is nearly upon us, and we're excited for walking tours this year because we didn't get to do very many last year, and so our walking tour guides kind of are, are excited to get going because they did miss doing those tours. And so uh, we've been kind of changing some of our tours up and adding some new stops and adding some new information that we've learned in the last year. So it's exciting. That's always exciting. Do you have yeah. any new tours or any new guides? Um, we have some new guides. We have Maggie, who has been volunteering and interning with us. She's going to she's gonna take on the Main Street tour, which wow. is exciting because... Um, uh, Julia, who usually does the Main Street tour, just had a little one, and so mm. she's going to take the summer off, and Maggie's going to step in and take that tour over for her for at least a summer. So Nice. Yeah, and so we have Maggie, and then we have some old guides, not old in age, but <laughs> <laughs> who, have been Elderly. Do- yeah, who have been doing uh, tours for us before that took breaks that are coming back on, so that's good. Alex Newby is going to come back oh, fantastic. and start doing our Murders, Madams, and Mediums oh, tours. He'll be so. good at that one. Yeah. 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 Uh, and he did it before. He hasn't done it for a few years, but he's done it before. So he's he's nice. excited about getting back to that. And and so we you know we've got we don't have any brand new tours, but we have some, a tour called Colliding Cultures that we debuted last year that we really didn't get to debut because of you know 2020 right, right. pandemic. So um, so we're excited to kind of re-debut that one. Again. That's exciting. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. And I'm sure people in Bozeman and visitors to Bozeman will be so glad that they're running again. Yeah. 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 So what about you, Nancy? Yeah. So um, I got a chance to reconnect with a former student who graduated from MSU who wants to go back to grad school, but taking time off until the pandemic's over and um, contacted me looking for work. And I was able to get him in touch with Shane Hope of Hope Archaeology, who actually has an office right here in the Extreme History Building. And um, he's been hired to be a field tech. So he's thrilled to be getting some Uh, more field experience and getting paid for it. And then um, he'll head back to graduate school to do archaeology. Mm, So I'm I'm very excited to be able to help close that circle. Um, And aside from that, (laughs) I have been diving into... Australopithecines, which uh, and human evolution in general. Prepping for this conversation. Prepping for this conversation today. And I have to say, it's one of my favorite topics. I love teaching about it. And um, I I think sometimes I torture my students. Sometimes I get the comment on my reviews that um, 
if I'm teaching a, a four field class, I spend too much time on the human evolution part because um, I think I like it so much. Yeah. I like it when other students get geeked out looking at the fossil skulls we have at MSU and things like that. But um, I learned a lot more doing this. And of course, that just generated a lot more questions for me. But I'm really excited um, to, to go forward with this podcast today and yeah. talk to our guest. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, let's let's do that. Let's, let's get move, to it. Let's get to it. So this week, we are at the Extreme History Headquarters speaking via Zoom with Dr. William Kimball about his research on human origins, specifically the period between 2.5 and 4 million years ago, during which our own genus, Homo, emerged from smaller brained ancestors. So welcome, Dr. Kimball. We're so glad to have you here today. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Crystal. I'm pleased to be with you. I look forward to chatting. We're so glad to have you here, Bill. Um, I've met you before a couple times, and I I can say... um, you're one of my very favorite paleoanthropologists, and you've been a great mentor to my good friend, Shara Bailey. Um, and so we're so excited you're here. But before we dive in, um, Crystal is going to read your bio so we can introduce you to our listeners. Sure. So Dr. William Kimball, and I, I promise that's the last time I'll say Dr. <laughs> William Kimball, but Dr. William Kimball is currently the director of the Institute of Human Origins at Arizona State University. He is a fellow of the American Association of the Advancement of Science and the Virginia M. Allman Professor of Natural History and the Environment in, and the Environment at ASU. He received his doctorate from Kent State University and has conducted paleontological fieldwork in Olduvai Gorge, Latoli, and in Tunisia, Israel, China, and Ethiopia. Dr. Kimball has published two books and is sole or co-author of over 60 chapters and articles that have appeared in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology, the Journal of Human Evolution, Nature, and Current Anthropology. He has mentored dozens of paleoanthropologists and served on doctoral committees of many well-known colleagues, including Dr. Shara Bailey, who we had on our podcast back in 2020. Alongside Donald Johansson, Dr. Kimball is a leading authority on Australopithecines, including Lucy, who we'll talk a little bit more about today, and most recently was co-author on the earliest fossil to date that is a member of our genus, Homo. Welcome, Dr. Kimball. Thanks very much. Okay, I hope we got all that right. We did a lot of stalking of you on the (laughs) internet. So one of the reasons we asked you today was um, the publication of the book Fossil Men by Kermit Patterson that came out in late 2020. And um, I have been reading that book, which I think is um, quite a fascinating history of paleoanthropologists, their discoveries, their debates over fossil hominins that relate to human evolution and our ancestors. And his book focuses um, primarily on the search for bipedal apes, um, the ones that first evolved after humans last shared a common ancestor with chimpanzees and bonobos, according to what we know from what geneticists tell us about um, our, our shared genomes, which was likely about 7 million years ago, give or take. A lot of Patterson's book focuses on um, fieldwork in Ethiopia in particular and the challenges of conducting fieldwork in the Afar region, uh, which is in the northeast of that country. So you and the the, um, other colleagues you have at the Institute of Human Origins, I'm just going to say IHO from here on out, 
Um, you, you all appear a bit in Fossil Men in the book, and um, you guys have discovered and reconstructed and analyzed fossils from that Afar depression of Ethiopia, where really many of the most significant and complete and well-dated fossil hominins have been discovered in the past several decades. So I wondered if you could just start by telling us a little bit about the Afar region of Ethiopia in particular, and what makes the geology there uh, so important for paleoanthropologists? Mm, that's a great question. Uh, the Afar Depression uh, is the uh, northernmost extension of the East African Rift Valley. And, and the rift is an enormous zipper-like uh, chasm running along the eastern edge of the continent in a very tectonically active area, an area where earthquakes happen, volcanoes happen because two continental plates come together here. And what has happened over millions of years is that blocks of the Earth's crust have been dropped down, often over a kilometer distance due to tectonic activity. And, and this dropping of, uh, of, of uh, blocks of the Earth's crust has exposed to the modern surface ancient sediments that were deposited millions of years ago by uh, uh, rivers draining into lakes in the Rift Valley, uh, alongside which our ancestors lived. And, and so their remains are commonly found there because the sediments in which they were buried are now exposed to the surface. And so so that's can, why they're not find. buried. There's, a, there's actually a fault line. And so these, these deeply deposited, that would normally be deeply deposited, like the way archaeologists think of stratigraphy, right. they've been pushed up by this, these plates. So imagine, imagine, if you will, prior to the onset of, of rifting, a fairly flat plane across which uh, is meandering a set of uh, streams and rivers draining uh, to a distant lake. Um, Alongside these river systems, early hominins, our ancestors like Lucy, uh, earned their livings on a day-to-day -day basis as, as parts of large communities of, of contemporaneous plants and animals, of course. Uh, over the millions of years, the, and, so, and so what happens is that, is that these, in, these individuals will die, their bones will lie on, on the surface, there will be flooding of these streams, which will tend to cover the, the bodies over with sediment, and the bodies get incorporated into a growing stack of sedimentary rock sediments. Millions of years later, after the onset of this uh, highly uh, active area, on the onset of rifting, um, the now once buried sediments are now lifted up to the surface and rivers and streams now coming from the, the highlands on either side of the Rift Valley are cutting into these ancient sediments, exposing their contents, including fossils that now come to lie on the surface a second time, but as fossil bones of our ancestors uh, millions of years later. So this is the same formation and processes when we hear Olduvai Gorge, when we hear Kenya and other places. This is this is just another part exposed in Ethiopia in particular, where yeah. a lot of the the story that um, Kermit Patterson is telling uh, about the discovery of fossils is taking place. He also mentions that Ethiopia. Um, it's unique in a couple of other ways or challenging in a couple of other ways. He mentions that there's been political instability um, on the one hand, which has made 
doing work there and getting permits there challenging, but also that um, that there's been a unique effort to, I think, collaborate and work with many indigenous Ethiopians who've become doctoral scholars in their own, many of whom gotten their degrees in American universities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Ethiopia um, was, rel- relatively speaking, um, going back to the 1980s now, was early on the scene with regard to working hand in hand with foreign based research groups to ensure that uh, local scholars could be trained and eventually run their own research projects. So many of the teams that have had a long history of working in the Ethiopian Rift and and elsewhere in Ethiopia, for that matter, um, have contributed to this effort. So now there's a there's a very strong cadre of uh, younger men and women who've got PhDs not only from U.S. institutions but in Canada, in Europe as well, uh, who are uh, conducting leading teams that are carrying forth research. It seems like such a wonderful collaborative um, aspect of the field work that's happening there. So it is. We've enjoyed we've enjoyed a very strong uh, working relationship with uh, with our Ethiopian partners. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's good. So the Great Rift Valley that you were just talking about that runs through several East African countries, including Ethiopia, Kenya, and Tanzania. Um, and so many pr- important fossils have come from these ancient exposed geological formations in those countries that you were just talking about. Like you said, um, Nancy, Olduvai Gorge, Lake Turkana, Latoli. And, and we have also seen in the last de- decade some amazing new fossils coming out of sites in South Africa as well, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, South Africa is not part of the Rift Valley system. I, I I think that That's is that correct? Yes. Okay. Correct. <laughs> um, yet it is one of the other countries in Africa that has yielded so many um, of these hominin fossils. So can you tell us a little bit about why we get so many of these hominin fossils from sites there, and how they have, um, and how they are different from the ones in the Rift Valley? Um, yes. Uh, it, you may know, your, your listeners may know, that in fact the very first Australopithecus fossil ever discovered was found in South Africa. Uh, it was only in the late 1950s uh, that the focus began to broaden to include the East African Rift Valley with the, uh, the terrific discoveries that the Leakey family made at Old Dubai Gorge beginning in around 1959. And so South Africa has long played a prominent role in the history of our field uh, in, in Africa. So the circumstances of the African sites, as you suggested, is quite different um, from, from what we see in East Africa. Uh, as you say, there's, uh, there's, uh, it's outside the rift. Um, there, uh, there, the volcanic activity was non-existent. Uh, volcanic activity provides volcanic ashes and lava flows in East Africa that permit us to date the sediments that the fossils are found in through radioisotope dating, much less straightforward in South Africa. In South Africa, we refer to the sites as caves, quote unquote, Mm. but we have to be really careful what we mean by caves because a cave in which an Australopithecus fossil is found is not the same kind of cave in which a Neanderthal fossil is found millions of years later because Neanderthals lived and uh, lived parts of their lives in these caves. The Australopiths, as far as we know, in South Africa, didn't actually inhabit these caves. Mm -hmm. These caves began as uh, underground 
caverns in limestone, in the bedrock, in places, um, uh, the most prominent places are so-called cradle of humankind outside of Johannesburg, which is a elevated plain underlain by extensive limestone bedrock. Well, the limestone is soluble, of course, and over millions of years, uh, groundwater, rain, underground streams, etc., tend to open up caverns under, un, in, in the limestone underneath the surface. Eventually, some of these openings actually reach the surface, and there are tubes or pipes that connect whatever is on the surface with the underground cavern. Now, over hundreds of thousands of years, these, uh, these, these connections between the surface and the underground caverns begin to widen and more and more material can wash in with rains. There are nearby streams, etc. We know that in the case of some uh, South African Australopithecus sites, that some of the remains were accumulated by large cats like leopards who would prey on hominins and other uh, elements of the fauna. You sometimes see like a, a tooth mark in the skulls, right? In the they, craniums they, of some exactly, of Exactly, at the yeah. site of Swartkrans. Mm -hmm. There's a pair of, uh, of, of, of uh, carnivore puncture marks. Mm. And, and what happens is that the remains of these, of these animals are scattered on the surface around the openings in the ground that lead to these underground caverns. And as I say, all manner of soil and, 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 and organic material and so forth winds up being deposited down in these caverns and eventually weakening of the limestone will result in the collapse of the roof that formerly uh, covered the cavern exposing all the contents to the surface this is mm. this is hundreds of thousands or millions of years later and then what you have as a result is this very hard set of sediments that began as material washing into a uh, into a hole in the ground connected to an underground cavern uh, is 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 now the fossil bearing content, and the the techniques that are used to extract the bones from the sediments in the South African caves can be very different from what we experience in East Africa, where. Uh, you you roam the sediments following particular horizons in the layer cake-like accumulation of, of rocks, sands and silts and volcanic ashes and so forth, looking for traces where bones have eroded out onto the surface. In South Africa, you have to extract blocks of the sediment out of these uh, very complex depositional um, uh, the, these uh, depositional areas where the ancient uh, soil and, and rock is exposed, and then clean them, uh, clean them up. So, so uh, the work is much more concentrated, geographically speaking. You're at a spot and you're extracting bones from now exposed ancient sediments. Um, whereas in East African settings, you spend much more time on your feet, uh, moving around from place to place, following. Uh, certain horizons looking for evidence of fossils that have eroded out of the now exposed sediment in the Rift Valley. Very different uh, experience from the point of view of the bones and how they wind up in the deposits and from the point of view of the scientists who are trying to recover them.
Not only is then it sounds like a very complicated uh, depositional environment that you have to then um, take apart and understand, but it's also not as easy to date the fossils from what I understand in South Africa, because you don't have those volcanic layers sandwiching in the fossils. How do they do it in South Africa? Is it with the the animal, the faunas that are also Traditionally, it's through the the means we call, the method we call biochronology, which Mm -hmm. to those who have taken an introductory course will know is one of the methods of of so-called relative as opposed to absolute dating. Um, And biochronology uh, simply uses the stage of evolution of various mammalian species, the more the better, um, at a site where it's not possible to use absolute dating techniques like radioisotopes, and then compare the stage of evolution to say an East African site where you have the same or similar species and good dates. And then you infer the age of the sediments in the first case from the association of an age and the species of fauna at that time period where you do have the dates. So it's it's an inference. It's an inferential procedure going from the known to the unknown and, and it's using a, it's, similar right. animal species as the link. But it's got to be somewhat problematic because animals continue to evolve over the time periods and geographic spaces. So you right. Yeah. right. And okay. so it is possible to do this um, you know, in a, in a stepwise fashion through time. As you say, the, the more the animals evolve, actually, the better markers they are for the passage of time. I see. Um, but the, but, the, but the pro- one of the problems is, is that um, many of the species in, in South Africa uh, uh, don't appear in East Africa. They're unique. South Africa is a very different place from the point of view of its paleo environment uh, at any given time compared to, to East Africa. So we don't always have the same species. We have similar species. But we don't always have the same ones. And that makes doing the, the biochronological linking between the two regions of the African continent potentially problematic. So in the interim, over the past 25 years or so, um, geologists, geophysicists have worked out a number of methods um, that can date some of the sediments that are found in these South African quote unquote caves. And um, they're, they tend not to be as precise and refined as the ages derived from radioisotope dating in East Africa, but it's an improvement over biochronology. Okay. The critical thing is, is that if you get the ages on the South African sites, you want your age estimates from the, from the methods that can date the sediments to agree with your inferences from biochronology. Okay. And if they don't, then you've got a problem to solve. Okay. Right, so, right, so the right. best, the best, the best solution to the age of any site anywhere, in fact, is to have the biochronology and the dating, the direct dating methods, agree with one another. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. We're going to take a quick station break, Bill. Yeah. Sure. So you are listening to the Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Nancy Mahoney and Crystal Alegria. We are speaking today with Dr. Bill Kimball about his research on human origins between 2.5 and 4 million years ago, during which our own genus Homo emerged from smaller-brained ancestors. All right. So, so Bill, we've set a little bit of the stage of what it it's like doing paleoanthropology or East and South Africa. And so we want to get back to Lucy now, because that's, that's a name uh, most of our listeners will know, um, and her species in general. So Lucy is a hominin ancestor, and I want to say hominin is what we call 
all of the ancestors that are bipedal all the way back to a shared common ancestor with a, um, what we presume would be our closest living relatives, chimpanzee. So anything right. that's ape-like and bipedal, we call a hominin. Is that right? Right. But the, 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 so, so a, a more precise definition of a hominin is any species that is more closely related to homo sapiens than it is to a chimpanzee. Okay, that was much, much easier said that way. The fact that bipedalism appears to be a good clue to being one of those species on our side of the split is just a, a contingent fact. It didn't right. have to be bipedalism. There's, there's my bias coming right through. I'm all well, jumping all over the bipedalism. Yeah, And it's, a re- it's not an unreasonable bias because it does happen to agree with the record, but there's nothing written in stone, if you'll pardon the pun, Right. It says that it must be bipedality. Well, the other else. things are smaller canines and thicker right. tooth enamel. So we will talk about that a little too. But right. those are the things that, okay, are, it's more, it's on our side of the lineage split, the, right. the human side. Yeah. Okay, so that's what a hominin ancestor is. So Lucy is one of our hominin ancestors, um, not necessarily a direct ancestor, but that lived in East Africa between 3 and 3.9 million years ago. And one of the reasons she's so well-known or famous is because her skeleton is really remarkably complete, about 40% complete. And that was very unusual, especially at the time she was found in 1974, because you had so many parts of the body below the cranium that you could reconstruct what her arms and her legs and her pelvis looked like and really start to understand how she moved. So she really changed the way we understood the evolution of that trait of walking on two legs or bipedalism. So she is a member of the species known as Australopithecus afarensis, and she has a relatively small brain, which by that we mean an ape-sized brain, sort of the size of a chimpanzee. So how did Don Johansson and I think it's Tom Gray and, and, um, and those of you who all looked at the fossil when it was back in the lab, um, how did the research team determine that Lucy was actually bipedal, that she walked upright on two legs? So Lucy, uh, discovered by Don Johansson, the founding director of, of the Institute of Human Origins back in 1974, um, was the uh, the first uh, uh, fossil of a, of a human ancestor uh, definitively dated older than 3.0 million years. And um, as such, uh, she filled in what had been up to that point a, a fairly or began to fill in a fairly empty uh, time period in our in our ancestry. We had fossils in South Africa that went back potentially close to three. Again, given the uncertainty of dating down there, uh, there were fossils going back to, you know, older than a little older than two in Eastern Africa. But she was the first to push the, our ancestry back that far. And what was uh, remarkable, as you suggested, was the uh, contrast between the inferences we were able to glean from her teeth and jaws, which looked relatively primitive, ape-like. And, uh, and her locomotor skeleton, which looked um, much more human-like. So you have a, a, a tension between north and south, if you will, in the body, between the, 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 the more ape-like jaws and teeth skull and more human-like body. Now, 
As to the inference as to how we could infer that Lucy walked like we do, it helps to remember that the, uh, the human skeleton and the muscles that attach to it constitute a series of levers. The skeleton is a bunch of levers that enable movement of the body. And the levers work by the action of the muscles that attach to them. And if you alter the shape of, say, the pelvis, then you move, you shift the attachments of the muscles that originate on the pelvis, potentially, and run across the hip joint to the legs and operate the hips and the knees. So if you have a species like modern humans, in which the link between the form of the bones, the actions of the muscles and the movement of the body can be understood, and then compared to that of any number of quadrupedal primates from right. chimps to gorillas to monkeys and so forth, you can see a very um, well-established pattern of similarities and differences. Right. And in the parts of the body having to do with the hind limb, that is to say the pelvis, the hip joint, the legs, the knee joint, the shins, the ankle joint, the foot, the toes, etc., you can see a very characteristic set of, 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 of features in humans uh, that enable efficient, upright walking on two legs compared to what we see in our quadrupedal cousins, the, the great apes and, and monkeys and so forth. So having established um, these two as sort of bookends for comparison, we can then observe the shape, size of Lucy's bones, observe, as has been done many times by now, that her pelvis, for example, the angle of her leg, the form of her foot, the motion, or the, the, the shape of the knee joint, these are all features of Lucy's skeleton that line up with human anatomy. That implies that the muscles that attach to these human-like configurations in the skeleton move them in similarly human-like ways. Right. So we take the pelvic blades, which are oriented uh, in, in apes and monkeys in a certain fashion. They've They've turned and bent in the human pelvic girdle. The muscles that attach to the blades that operate the hip joint have moved, and so they perform different functions than they do in a quadruped. We see those same shape changes in Lucy's pelvis. Hmm. And so um, the inference is, is that the muscles that attach to them operated the joints of the hip and the knee and the foot and so forth in similar ways. And no matter where you look in, in Lucy and other uh, hominin uh, skeletal remains from the same time period, you see time and again, the hip moved in a human-like way. The knee was capable, for example, of full extension in which your thigh and your shin line up in 180 degrees, which doesn't happen in, in chimps and gorillas. They oh, have that's flexed, interesting. They have a flexed knee. Okay. And you can see why they have a flexed knee in terms of the restricted amount of motion at the knee joint based on the shape of the bottom part of the femur and the top part of the tibia, which together mm. constitute uh, the, okay. uh, yeah. the, the knee. And so forth on down to the, to the, to the, to the ankle and the foot. And uh, as, if to, as, as if on, on order, right? As if on order from above, 
You know, uh, back in the late 1970s, Mary Leakey's team, working at the site of Lytoli, not far from, from Olduvai Gorge, which had sediments and some fossil bones that looked much like Lucy's species from Hadar North in Ethiopia, um, found a set of remarkable footprints dated to about 3.6 million years old, made in a, what at the time, these individuals traversed it was a wet volcanic ash had freshly fallen it, uh, from a, an eruption that had rained. The ash was was muddy. Two hominins walked through, uh, a big one and a small one. Whether following each other side by side is not possible to know, but but close close in time to one another, left their footprints behind like we would leave footprints on a wet beach. And right in ash that you can date. I mean, it couldn't have been right more in a perfect. datable volcan right in a datable mm-hmm. volcanic ash. I mean, there was a ton of other to animal food. prints too, but these yes. were the only ones of a biped. Yeah, that's correct. And these that's correct. And these footprints confirm what we had inferred from Lucy's skeletal remains hmm. um, that uh, the foot, uh, which, of course, is where the, 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 the what do they say? The pedal meets the road. The metal meets the pedal. What do they yeah, yeah, the, where, Any know, of the those things yeah, are good. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, foot, the foot is where all the action is. Right. right. Because this is the part of the body that, that that transmits your body weight as you're moving to the ground. Right. And thanks to Newton's law that says every action is an equal and opposite reaction is pushing back up from the ground into your limbs. Uh, uh, this is where all that, uh, that 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 force and energy exchange happens is at your feet. So so what the footprints at Lytoli showed is that as in humans, the great toe, the first toe is in line with the other toes. It's not divergent Opposable. like you see okay. in climbing apes yeah. and monkeys. Um, the the uh, uh, the other toes were relatively short compared to the great length of the toes in in climbing uh, apes, uh, and uh, there apparently we know this also from bones found at Hadar that there was the foot was double arched like a human foot, and and the arches in the human foot perform a an important spring like mechanism that absorbs shock and then lets it go, uh, the muscles and other soft tissues in the sole of the foot act like springs. And, and, and that's part of the arch system in our foot. Lucy had that too. Mm-hmm. So south to the, from the feet, ankle, knee, hip, fundamentally human. Wow. And uh, and now there are lots of, you know, this is this is the broad picture. There's some debate about just how human like uh, her skeleton and movements were. Uh, whether or not she could have spent a little time climbing in the trees. Because uh, she has like kind of long arms and, and kind of long right. fingers so, that are curved. Right. Yeah. So, so, no, so despite the fundamental similarity that I just explained or just outlined to you in the, uh, in the trunk and lower limb, uh, no one would mistake Lucy's skeleton for a human. If you saw Lucy walking across the landscape, you would not see uh, you would not create a picture in your mind's eye of a human it would look human from the point of view of its bipedal walking mm-hmm. and and how the body moved with each stride it would be very much like ours except her legs were shorter and so she might have had a bit more of a of a i don't want to say a, a, a waddle but 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 her hips were wide, her legs were short, and so mm. so so when you saw her walk, it would look human. But you'd say, "Boy, that's 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 human-like walking," 
I've never seen anything else like it anywhere in the primate world, but it's not completely human-like. Not a marathon runner, for sure. Not, not, yeah. and, and, and her forearms were mm -hmm. long mm -hmm. as yeah. well. And so the limb proportions were different, and that's part of why you would see Lucy and say, well, yeah, it's human-like, but it's not fully human. So the debate about her locomotion is focused on those differences okay. in the limb proportions and on the fact, for example, that her toe bones and finger bones were longer than ours and more curved than ours. Our, our finger and toe bones are short and straight. Mm. Um, Lucy's were a little bit longer and more curved, more like a chimpanzee's finger mm. and toe bones. And that has led some people to infer that Lucy may have spent some time climbing in the trees where curved digits, both in the hands and feet, may have uh, been an advantage. I kind of wish okay. we, we still had that, actually. I mean, I, I always tell my <laughs> students she looks kind of more ape-like from the waist down and more, um, I mean, more human-like from the waist down and more ape-like from the waist up. Um, and I've seen those footprints, the way the studies that they've done, they look very convincing, heel strike, toe push-off. You see a little bit of a gap between that big toe. I mean, I mean, I'm sure her feet weren't pretty, but they, you know, they definitely look like. I, I can't imagine walking and meeting one of these creatures. I just think that would be the yeah. most fascinating experience, and indeed. I'm sure she would stare at us as much as we would stare at her. In, right, indeed. Right. Indeed. So I have to ask the question: oh, how, yeah. <laughs> how, how did Lucy get her name, Lucy? Oh, of course. Well, this is this is uh, not a uh, not a top secret, um, <laughs> uh, but uh, a good the, story. <laughs> the, the field season she was found would have been that would have been in November of 1974, and so the story is told is when her remains uh, were brought into the uh, to the camp at the Hadar site. Uh, by Don Johansson and members of the field team um, that uh, uh, um, uh, Sergeant Peppers was playing on the tape on the cassette machine. Remember cassettes? Yep, yep. Um, I do. Yeah, I do as well. I have them. Cassette, yeah, and, and, and Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, right? That's Sergeant Peppers? No, it's a magical mystery tour, maybe. Okay. You know anyway, more than one I know. Of, one yeah. of the two. I can no okay. longer remember. I think it's Sergeant Peppers. The Beatles. <laughs> uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was playing, and the Beatles song, and and they uh, sort of seemed like a natural uh, nickname. Okay, wow, that's, that's wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, I heard that story recently, and I, I just loved it. So it's good for people to know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I I told it at one point, and someone in my student, one of my students, brought up that the LSD, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, oh. referred to the drug and. We were talking about all this, and I think some other student must have been only partially awake during that portion of the class because a rumor started going around campus that Australopithecines were doing LSD, and they had heard this in <laughs> Professor Mahoney's class, and I was oh, like, no. oh, my word. <laughs> so just for anyone out there, that I'd, is I'd not... Love, I'd love to see the reviews on that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I had a lot of people signing up the yeah, following I semester. Exactly. The following yeah, semester. yeah. It did wonders for your class. <laughs> Enrollment. <laughs> okay. All right. So in all seriousness, though, but um, s since Lucy's discovery, since the 1970s, there have been um, so many more. I think we have over 30 individu individual uh, Australopithecine effer Australopithecus afarensis individuals, um, partial, probably not as complete as Lucy. But in that sample, you have males, females, 
juveniles. So um, you all know a lot more about the species as a whole, about that whole um, taxa. And one thing um, that's become apparent is that um, male afarensis skeletons are considerably larger than female ones. And, and that's a condition we talk about as sexual dimorphism, so that males and females have different body shapes. So like what we see in gorillas or what we see um, in even chimpanzees, not uncommon in, in apes, we see it in monkey species and orangutans. Um, so what we wanted to ask or have you explain um, for all of us is how you determine that you have a sexually dimorphic species, like you had talked about the large set of footprints and the small set, which could have been a male and a female or an older and a younger. But when you, how do you know something is sexually dimorphic rather than just two different species altogether? This is a great question and one that confronts every paleoanthropologist who has, uh, who has more than one fossil specimen in front of them of the same part of the anatomy uh, is, is asking, you know, how many things do I have? Uh, things here uh, in, in zoology, whether it be living uh, uh, fauna or extinct fauna, the things are, uh, that we refer to here are species. Uh, and so the, 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 the universal first question, am I dealing with a sample that is composed of a variable set of individuals representing a single species or am i dealing with more than one species multiple things this is important to figure out because if we think that the sample in front of us represents more than a single species then the 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 shape of the tree of life around human ancestry looks different more twigs, more branches, than if we conclude that the sample represents just one of those lineages or twigs or branches uh, composed of a variable set of, of, of organisms. So it's, it's a first step in analysis is, am I dealing with one thing or multiple things? Fortunately, we have a, uh, a good set of comparisons that we can make. And those comparisons are um, the species, the living species of other primates. And so we can go out into the field, we can go observe in museums, skeletal material, we can look at uh, how males and females interact out in field work, etc., and observe what are the, uh, the size differences between males and females. How do the size differences translate to the anatomy of the bones, right, and teeth, and then use the the regular patterns, right, to make inferences about the fossils. There are limits to this, however, limits to this, and the limit appears to be in the case of early Australopithecus that the different parts of the anatomy of the skeleton, the teeth, et cetera, give different signals about so-called sexual dimorphism, change, uh, differences in size and shape in the skeleton, teeth, et cetera, between males and females. So for example, if we go and look at uh, chimpanzees and gorillas, uh, our closest living uh, primate relatives, 
uh, we'll observe that, especially in the case of gorillas, but also in chimpanzees as well, that there's a pretty good size difference on average between males and females. And that difference translates in, a, in, a, in an approximate way to, to differences between their skeletal elements. It's really easy to see in gorillas because gorilla males are much, oh, much bigger yeah, than gorilla yeah, females. Yeah, yeah. But even much. my students can see in full, fully adult yeah. cranium and, and aspects of chimpanzees, it's sure. not hard to tell the difference. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And gorilla males have great big sagittal crests at the yeah. top of their skulls. Females rarely do. Mm. But it's less obvious when it comes to chimpanzees because mm-hmm. the overlap between male size and, and, and female size in chimpanzees, as in humans, is mm-hmm. less than what we see, for example, in gorillas. So there's a range of body size and skeletal size dimorphism, male-female differences across the great apes. But having said that, in both gorillas and chimpanzees, the size of the male canine tooth compared to the female canine tooth is much greater. Hmm. So in those species, you have males being larger than females, and in body size and skeletal size, and you have males with larger canine teeth than females do. So even if it's a smaller male, you'd more likely see a larger projecting canine, and that would help you. Right. Okay. Right. Now here's 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 now now go to humans. Mm-hmm. Humans, of course, it's obvious. Our canine teeth are minimally different between males and females, and body size differences between males and females is also much less than what we see in, in, in the great apes. So on one hand, we have humans in which both indicators of dimorphism are, are reduced in terms of male-female differences. You go to the apes and you both are quite different between males and females. The problem with Australopithecus is that it appears that skeletal size dimorphism is at least moderate, if not large in degree in terms of the average difference between male and female body size, but the canine teeth are not. The canine teeth are notably in Australopithecus, not dimorphic. They are slightly more dimorphic than what we see in humans, right? So you could take the largest canine and feel safe that you've identified as a male and the smallest feel safe that you've identified as female. There's a whole bunch of them in the middle that you can't attribute to male or female and feel comfortable about it. Hmm. And yet, when you look at the, at the, at the thigh bones, the, 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 the jaws, the other parts of the skeleton, you see a much greater range of variation that, that sensibly is, seems to be telling you something about male-female differences. So the teeth tell you, the canine teeth tell you one thing in the fossils, the body size, skeletal size differences tell you, an, tell you another. There's no primate alive in which that is the case. There's no and so we, we yeah. run up against, uh, I won't say an interpretive barrier, but an interpretive obstacle hmm. uh, to making a, a clear-cut case about how males and females may have behaved in relation to one another. Uh, because as, 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 and let's uh, let's stop you there and let Crystal ask her next question because yeah. that's okay. where we're so going with this. Okay. I just want to finish off by saying, um, in terms of how you how you know you have one species or two with Australopithecines, with Afarensis, you're fortunate that you have a large enough sample that has both right. males and females. But if you just had two, if you had Lucy and then a male, it would be much more difficult. I mean, you could look at the shape of the teeth and all these other things, but 
it would probably be much more debated whether it was. Well, my my experience uh, tells me that you can you can double triple uh, fossil sample size, and you don't necessarily satisfy your critics in the process. Yes, and that sounds um, to be a, a function of paleoanthropology. Well, it's, it's not just paleoanthropology. It's, <laughs> that's, true. that's true. That's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But um, but um, uh, so yes, so. Um, um, if we look, so we have 400 some specimens of Lucy species from the Hadar site, uh, Australopithecus alfarensis. Some of them are just single teeth. Some of them are, you know, partial skeletons like Lucy. But we have a large number of teeth. We have a large number of, you know, arm bones, the humerus, femora, the, the thigh bone. We're building up really large samples in which we can observe how consistent are the anatomical characteristics that appear to identify the Afarensis species across these growing samples and then examine how they differ in size. And what, we, what we've come to see is that there are very, very few differences among the, say, 50 jaw fragments we have of Lucy species. You can tell it's Lucy species with, the, with the, uh, even a small chunk of the lower jaw because mm -hmm. the diagnostic anatomy of the, of the mandible is very consistent across okay. the sample yeah. of fossils of the, of the jaws. Meanwhile, we've got some big ones. We've got some small ones. We've got some intermediate, but they all look like Afarensis jaws, right? Okay. So our first uh, approach, which is the one that seems to be the best explanation for what we're observing out there, is that we have a single species that is easily recognizable based on a, on a confined pattern of anatomy. And within that confined pattern of anatomy, uh, we have a fair amount of size variation. Okay. And so that seems to agree with how male and female uh, differences uh, are, uh, are expressed in species of living primates. Okay. Okay. So now okay. let's go to our, yeah. what we think that might mean. Go ahead, Crystal. Yeah. So in both monkeys and apes that have dimorphism, it's associated... It is associated with social behaviors in which males compete with each other for dominance and access to females in the case of mating. Species with little or no sexual dimorphism, such as gibbons, seems to be associated with pair bonding or monogamy. So, with that in mind, can we make inferences about the social organization or type of mating systems that Lucy's species had based on the fact that male afarensis are so much larger than females? Yeah. Um, we, we can, but with several important caveats. The first caveat is no matter, and I mentioned it already, is no matter how far you look, you're not going to find a living analog to an Australopithecus right. in terms of size differences in one part of the anatomy, the, the size differences in the teeth, etc. There's no primate that replicates what we see in the sample of bones from Hadar between you know, three and a half and three million years ago attributed to her species. Because of that, we, we have to proceed very carefully in how we reconstruct the social behavior because we're we're not completely at sea, but we don't have any firm anchors in the in the in the modern primate world to hang our interpretation on. But 
let's look at it this way. One of the earliest changes to occur, as far as the fossil record is concerned, in the hominin lineage is a reduction in the size of the canines and the loss in the process of the uh, of the uh, of, of the wear in those canines that keeps male large canines sharp in the great apes. So in our in our mouths, our canine teeth wear down like the other teeth. In chimpanzees and gorillas, those canines stay projecting and sharp even in fairly old age when all the other teeth have already worn down flat. And the reason for that is simple, because the canines don't particularly have a dietary function in these animals. They instead are part of what one anthropologist, I believe it was Sherwood Washburn, called the anatomy of bluff and fighting. Mm -hmm. And this is the role that the canines play in male-male aggressive interactions competing for reproductively mature females. So the canines have a, a social, not a dietary function, the large canines and great apes. Well, humans have lost that, obviously, and sensibly, you would think <laughs> that the first, you know, that, 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 that the initial change had something to do with a change in that social system, mm -hmm. right? Okay. And we go back to the earliest hominins, including Artipithecus that we'll be talking about. Um, and we see that the canines don't appear to be dimorphic. That is to say, they appear to be in their size variation to cluster around a fairly narrow range of size. And they wear down flat as they do in Lucy species. And in fact, all the species of hominins subsequent leading right up to modern humans. The key thing is, is that it doesn't appear to be related to diet because mm -hmm. the first signs of canine reduction and loss of sharpening occurs in species that appear to be very ape-like in their dental and jaw anatomy otherwise. Mm -hmm. We don't see the emphasis on dietary change until later in Australopithecus, by which point the canines had already been small and non-sharpening, that is to say, wearing down to flat surfaces like the other teeth for millions of years. So that implies that the initial change must have had social consequences. Now, once you get past that, you get into the details, which become a little fuzzier. Does that mean, did that mean that males, as is the case in great apes, where males compete with each other using their body size differences and their canine size differences uh, to express dominance? Does that mean that Lucy's species, in Lucy's species, the males didn't engage in that uh, kind of competition? Or does it mean that in spite of the reduction and loss of sharpening of the canine teeth, the large body size differences on average between males and females still could have played a role right. in male-male competition, right. even though the, the dental apparatus component of that, which is so common in the apes, had changed. Hmm. There it gets a little tricky. Because again, we don't have an analog to go to and say, ah, well, there's an example where both body size and canine size have reduced. And uh, the other isn't. weird example are gibbons that have very similar body size between male and females. They're monogamous, but they both have projecting canines that are... And that is because both males and females defend family-based territory. Mm -hmm. So it has a lot to do with defense, whether it's, or or some kind of a, aggression and need to do that, whether it's, it's intraspecies or interspecies, it seems like. So it just seems right, with so this reduced canines, it's telling us something about this overall evolution towards um, 
a different kind of social behavior, a different kind of way of being right. able to interact yeah. as groups. And, and, and notwithstanding, you know, how college students tend to behave, <laughs> you know, humans, humans don't compete, uh, you know, the way uh, other great apes do uh, mm-hmm. for, uh, for females. And, um, and I mean, this is, you know, right. we don't. We have it's, competition. I'm not right. saying we don't have competition. We do. But it's not, the, it's not based around the anatomy. No. Of body size and canine size differences, as it is in our closest living primate relatives. Right. I know cooperation has seemed to have been a real driving factor in the evolution leading to Australopithecines in humans. And I, I think a long time, well, a while ago, we used to hear a very different story that it was competition that was driving everything. And I think, you know, this is interesting that the farther we go back with these fossils, the the more evidence even the anatomy is telling us that cooperation is something so significant to how we ended up. Right. So I will, before we leave teeth, I want to ask you a little bit more about another um, study you were just involved in, the team from IHO. So paleoanthropologists can tell a whole lot of different things from teeth, from diet and growth patterns, foraging behavior, habitat, competition, things like this. And recently, the IHO team looked closely at the tooth enamel of Australopithecus afarensis, and they did something with stable isotopes um, from the enamel that allowed you to reconstruct certain aspects of the diet and the habitat by looking at the plants they consumed. So different types of plants known as C3 plants or C4 plants. So C3 plants tend to occur more in woodland or forested area. Am I right about that? And C4 plants, I think corn is one of those, are more, um, not that that was in Africa, but C4 plants occur more in open uh, grassland areas or savannas. Um, And they leave different signatures in the tooth enamel so that we can actually then reconstruct what kinds of plants the those australopithecines were consuming um so can you tell us a little bit about that process and what you found out what were lucy's species foraging more was it more forest plants or woodland plants or some kind of mix so let, let's let's let uh, you correctly characterize the difference between c3 and c4 uh, plant communities and the difference comes down to um uh, the efficiency with which um, carbon is fixed in the plant tissues under different, different growing conditions uh, through during photosynthesis. And C3 plants prefer to grow in relatively shaded conditions. And in Africa, those shaded conditions will typically be woodlands, forests, um, uh, areas where there's a fair amount of shade. C4 plants, as you suggested, prefer to grow in sunny uh, uh, conditions. And in Africa, that will tend to be more in the area of bushland and grassland and so forth. Grasses are, by and large, classic C4 African plants. Uh, uh, Anything with leaves will be a C3 plant. So the, 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 the carbon isotopic signature is, is, uh, occurs within a narrow range uh, of whether, depending on whether you're a C3 or a C4 plant, and that can be measured. Um, what happens when, it, when an individual animal that eats plants is growing up, the teeth are, of course, developing 
enamel cells are depositing the enamel on the growing teeth. We're looking at a young individual. Uh, she's growing up, she's maturing, she's been weaned. Now she's moving on to solid foods that everybody else eats, but her teeth are still developing. Mm. What happens is, is that the chemical signature of the plant foods that are ingested by this growing individual whose teeth are not still fully formed is incorporated into the enamel of the uh, developing teeth. Hmm. This is true in living species. So if you go and you, you look at the, um, you grind a giraffe's tooth down and you examine it through um, mass spectrometry to reveal the chemical composition, of the I was just doing that the other day, Chris. You will, you will, yeah. you will, you will, you would like to have seen that. See, you yeah. will, <laughs> me too. You will, you will find a C3 plant signature because giraffes are, you know, uh, uh, a classic C3 plant food eater. You know, they crop leaves from, right. from trees in fairly closed conditions. Um, contrast that with, a, with an antelope or a gazelle. Uh, in Africa that eats grass all the time and you're going to see a C4 chemical signature. And this is, by the way, the, the isotope 13 carbon, just for clarity here, that is being measured. And uh, it's the isotope of carbon. Well, this works for fossil teeth too, turns out. And so uh, a few years ago, my colleagues and I, in a paper that was published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, um, uh, analyzed uh, a sample of afarensis teeth that had already that were naturally broken so we weren't you know sampling breaking teeth to sample them these were naturally broken teeth found fragmentary in the fossil records were clearly those of of australopithecus not a pig not a monkey etc and uh drilled very tiny samples into the enamel um and we're able to uh, analyze them in the lab for the 13 carbon signature. And from the 13 carbon signature, we can tell whether the, that individual was eating while it was developing, eating adult foods, whether it was preferring plant foods that grew in a shaded closed environment, had a C3 signal or a relatively open environment, sunny. Of course, the plant communities will differ out there, right? C4. Right, right. Mm -hmm. What was really fascinating to find was that the Lucy sample, the Afarensis sample, showed an incredible variety of readings from mm -hmm. around 20 or so teeth. We found individuals that, that at, when they were developing their teeth were eating plants that grew in C3 type environments, relatively shaded environments. We have other individuals from the same time horizon that appear to have preferred plant foods that yielded a high C4 signal. That mm. is to say the plant foods they were eating grew out in, in, in open, you know, open, more, more uh, quote unquote, savanna type environments. Yeah. And, and, and um, there was no, no clear preference. They appear to, to uh, up and down the 400,000 year sequence in which we find Lucy species at the Hadar site. Wow. So what do you do with trend, that? It didn't yeah. trend in one direction, didn't the, trend in the other direction. Okay. In each time horizon in which we sampled teeth, you found there was a variety of, of signals okay. from C3 yeah. all the way up to C4. And the fascinating thing beyond that 
is that um, this is one of the first fossil samples at around three to three and a half million years to show a very clear C4 plant food component to mm -hmm. its diet. If you go back to earlier Australopithecus, prior to three and a half million or so, C3. You go back to Ardipithecus, C3. Hmm. You look at chimpanzees and gorillas, not surprisingly, C3. C3. Okay. Right? And so Lucy's species appears to be the first one to signal an expansion of dietary resource breadth into plant foods that grew out in the open in relatively sunny environments. And that is fascinating. Becomes, I mean, that's that, huge. Yeah, that's huge. It's a huge step because we yeah. eat, we eat C4 foods. Right. But Corn, it's also out in the open, not in the trees where they're right. not running up to sleep. It's a whole different way they, of protecting yourself as a group, as an animal. They are they are ranging into areas where they are out in relatively open environments, feeding, not just traversing not just traversing, they're actually feeding in relatively open areas. And, and this, is, this is not something that, that, as far as the carbon isotopes go, is suggested by earlier species, which, which although they may have spent time in, in open environments, they weren't preferring to feed in them. Instead, they're preferring to feed in, in relatively closed environmental condition where C3 plants are plentiful. And, and uh, it's really instructive if you look at, at chimpanzees today. So there's a group of chimpanzees, as you may know, uh, some of them are in Eastern Africa, but they're, they're also well-known in West Africa. They're called so-called savanna chimpanzees. And these are chimpanzees. We tend to think of chimpanzees as living in the tropical forest. Well, some of them do, some of them don't. Some chimpanzee groups actually live in environments in which there are both open habitats and, and more forested habitats. And those so-called savanna chimpanzees, for example, the ones in West Africa, they spend a fair amount of time in open environments. Moving from food patch to food patch, they have to go through environments that Lucy would have looked at and said, well, that looks familiar to me. You know, right. um, It's fairly open. But here's the thing about savanna chimpanzees. They don't eat the C4 I was just going to ask. So mm. they go over it, but they don't, whereas Lucy's eating and finding food in these areas so, so different. Hmm. Yeah. So whether that is a physiological shift right. or simply, the, so chimpanzees can't, maybe can't eat C4 foods physiologically. They can't digest them maybe. Hmm. Maybe so that maybe there was a switch in the physiology that permitted hominins at certain certain points to be able to ingest C4 foods as well as C3 foods. Or maybe chimps just don't like C4 foods. Maybe they mm. could eat them. Mm -hmm. I don't yeah. know, but 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 they don't. So maybe so it could or some combination. There's a, a physiological shift and a preference shift that goes along with it, or maybe it's just a preference shift. Hmm. Uh, building on the, you know, on an ancestral template in which it was possible but not. Uh, in which a broad range of plant foods uh, as in the diet was possible, but simply wasn't exploited. Okay. Maybe because the environments didn't right. feature as many open areas where hominins could congregate to eat. Anyway, the, the, notwithstanding the, those details, the point is, is that uh, humans today can eat a variety of C3 and C4 foods. We, we eat, you know, we eat it all. 
right? right. <laughs> and we also eat the animals that eat the C4 plants, right? right? So we eat, we, and that also gives a C4 signal. So when you eat a, um, uh, uh, if, if you're a, um, a carnivore and you eat an antelope, you're going you'll to get, get C4. that C4. You'll get the C4 signal of what the antelope ate in your. In Whereas your, in chimps your, tend to animal. eat monkeys or other. If they're eating meat, it's other animals that are eating other C3 plants. So you're not really going to see. So okay, so there's a lot of interesting. I, I feel like all mm-hmm. these future lines of research, but I, I want to move um, to the back teeth of the Australopithecines before we finally um, do another station break and get onto Artipithecus. But the the back teeth of Australopithecines, and not just Afarensis, but some of the ones that are younger in time, um, people call them robust Australopithecines, people call them Paranthropus, a different genus, and I'm not sure where you stand on that. But but their cheek teeth are so big, Bill, they're huge. They're massive in some cases. And I've never really understood because, you know, Lewis Leakey used to call the first one he found Nutcracker Man. And it just looked like these massive, powerful jaws with these huge molars that are just would be perfect nutcrackers to crunch anything. And then we find when they're looking at the surface of these teeth that we don't have any indication that they are eating really hard foods. So this idea that they evolved to crush through all these hard foods doesn't seem to be holding up. So what do we think now about why we have in Australopithecines these really massive back teeth? And, you know, the reduction of the canines might be related to something that has to do with social behavior, nothing dietary, but but what's going on in the back? This has become a, uh, you know, we thought we had this worked out in a fairly simple scheme <laughs> at one time. Right. Uh, since the mid-1950s, when uh, in South Africa and then later in East Africa, remains of these so-called robust Australopithecus or Paranthropus, if you want, species were found. It was recognized that something unusual was going on in their jaws and teeth and the bony supporting structures for the chewing muscles. Um, the skulls of these creatures look utterly unique oh, uh, yeah. in Just... terms of the flatness of their faces and yeah. the massiveness of the of the bony uh, architecture where the chewing muscles are anchored is, yeah. is truly impressive. So it has long been thought that uh, the robust Australopithecus species in particular um, were highly specialized um, uh, from a dietary point of view. It was never clear what exactly they would have been eating at this sort of general, general level of description, but other than the fact that it was something that was presumed to be demanding mechanically. Right, of these crunching muscles, because their incisors are quite small. They're not impressive yeah. at all. Well, the front, the front teeth of these robust australopiths are, are tiny, probably simply because of space constraints um, mm. imposed huh. by the huge that premolars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And um, so, but here, here comes the, 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 the complicating factor. We know from ex- modern experimental evidence looking at what happens to monkey and ape teeth when they eat certain um, foods of a particular, uh, particular mechanical properties, what happens to the surface of their teeth, microscopically as well as macroscopically, right? So animals that eat hard objects, and hard here is usually defined as a, a, a food item um, that will fracture under load, right? It breaks apart, right? 
and it requires a fairly considerable load. But the point of application to initiate the fracture is 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 small, right? So imagine you're eating a seed, right? And we've all had the experience, right, of eating a small seed and cracking a tooth, right? Yeah. We've all had that happen. Oh, I've yeah. had it happen, unfortunately, more than once. Uh, yeah. And yeah. Um, and and that's because you're applying a huge amount of force to a very small object that is, you know, crushed between the teeth. So it's a very small point of application of high force. But this and and what happens is that in animals that tend to eat a lot of hard objects, their teeth become pitted, right? And because of this application of high force to a small object, their enamel becomes pitted and it becomes scratched in such a way that there are scratches, you know, going in every which way across the tooth, microscopic scratches. Well, it turns out the robust Australopithecus molars don't look anything like that. Um, and so the notion that, 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 that they were specializing for the better part of their adult lives on hard to crack so-called nutcracker type diets doesn't seem to hold up. Now, there are other types of foods that are still mechanically resistant. And most of them you would be familiar with are fibrous foods, mm -hmm. uh, reeds, uh, mm -hmm. leaves uh, of various types. They don't fracture, they, they have to be ripped apart, right? You think about eating, you know, uncooked uh, spinach, for example. It requires mm -hmm. a lot of slicing mm -hmm. and dicing in your in your mouth mm -hmm. to 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 reduce uncooked spinach and other fibrous foods to digestible proportions. Um, and they tend to leave a characteristic set of marks across the, the the teeth microscopically too. You get scratches, but the scratches there tend to be more parallel. Right, than in the case of hard foods. So you can build up a, 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 uh, a database, if you will, of, uh, uh, from living primates of what happens to, mi microscopically, what happens to the surfaces of their teeth given different diets. The dilemma for the Australopiths is that, um, is that for example, um, the microware on the molars of Afarensis lucy species looks just like the microware on the surfaces of robot later robust Australopithecus molars, which are you know, twice as big, yeah. have thicker enamel, are seated in much more massive jaws with all the the massivity of the muscle attachment areas that are not present in Lucy, hmm. but the microware on their teeth looks the same. Hmm. Interestingly, the later robust Australopiths in East Africa, getting back to the isotopes, have a pure C4 diet. Okay. Like a gazelle or an antelope beating out wow. in the open. Would gelatis but the microware on its teeth is not different from Lucy, which whose isotopic signature oh, is all over the map. She just, yeah. Huh. Now, these two sources of insight are telling us two different, they're answering two different questions. The isotopes are telling us, are answering the question, I should say, what part of the plant community does this species prefer to eat? Hmm. Right. The part that grows in relatively closed conditions or the part that grows in relatively open, sunny conditions? Well, the answer is in, in Afarensis, there is no preference. They're right. all over the place. Okay. They can do both happily, happily. At any given time period, across time, they seem to be very uh, flexible in terms of which part of the plant community they prefer. 
the microware isn't answering the same question. The microware is answering the question, what are the mechanic or the physical properties of food items that are placed between the teeth? Doesn't tell you whether it's a C3 environment or a C4 environment. It tells you, is it a hard food? Is it a fibrous food? Is it a soft food like fruits, right? And so we have these two sources of data on objects that are put in these, these individuals' mouths. Each source is answering a different question Therefore, where we need to find the answer is where the two overlap. In other words, where can we go in Africa today, perhaps, and find plant communities that differ between C3 and C4 and then test their mechanical properties in each area and come up with a group of potential plants. They're not going to be the same plants, you know, millions of years later, but in terms of their properties, come up with a, with, a, with, a, with, a, with a database of plants that have both physical property information, hard, soft, uh, tough, tough fibrous foods are called tough, hard, soft, tough, and on the other side, um, they grew in C3 or C4 and see where they, they inter intersect and then narrow it down from there, right. narrow it down from there to the likeliest plant foods that these species might have preferred. And, um, and that kind of research is going on right now uh, in Africa uh, with living primates, mm -hmm. living plant communities to try to get a handle on this because right now the different sources of information are conflicting with one another, potentially. So, so we don't really know why those teeth are so big yet, um, is the they, short they answer. Are big because, <laughs> they are big because the, the, something was going on with their diet Yeah, that, I mean, demanded, that demanded big teeth. And in, and it's just interesting because it seems like after um, afarensis, you, you get the robust Australopithecines that are really focusing on that, whereas when you get to a homo lineage you're getting much more of the kind of teeth that look like they could eat anything, which is what we're interestingly right. seeing in the diet of Ostra, of afarensis. Right. So that's that's right. fascinating difference there. And, and, and I'll tell you another interesting fact about early homo and dietary isotopes, right? Early homo, the, the early homo teeth going back around 2 million, a little older, look uh, from an anatomical and size point of view, a lot like those of Australopithecus. And their isotopic signature sort of sits in the middle of the afarensis range. So the means oh, of the values of the 13-carbon isotope fraction is, is roughly the same. Up till about 1.7 million years ago. And at 1.7 million years ago, give or take, teeth that have been identified as early homo teeth show a high C4 oh. dietary signal. Huh. Those teeth, of course, younger than 1.7 in East Africa, are what species? Homo erectus. Homo erectus, and what Yay, is like? I get what's an home, a. What's homo? Thank you, thank you. Yeah, you get an A. You get an A for today. <laughs> what, 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 what likely was Homo erectus doing uh, from a from a resource? Uh, scavenging and out scavenge. so maybe they're or, eating meat of grazers and they're walking. They're I mean they're running maybe mm -hmm. even and they're and they're or, leaving or, Africa. I mean my God. Or, what or, aren't they doing? Well, they're, they're probably hunting. Yeah. Uh, Do you think they're that. hunting? They're not just... I think they're... Homo erectus was probably a hunter. Okay, no. that's new for me. Mm. I wow. think Homo erectus was probably a hunter. You I think mean, they... it was, may have also scavenged too. Yeah, right. yeah. Right. Uh, But, you know, we have evidence now of, of meat consumption in the form... Well, 
indirect. There are some suggestions of, of stone tool cut marks mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on mammalian bone from sites that are Lucy's age, three point two. Right, when we're million. pushing back the stone tools and into stone that. Tools okay, but we're getting ahead back. of ourselves yeah. here. So hold on, yeah. hold on. So let me jump yeah. in. Let yeah, me we're jumping. Jump okay. And um, I want to talk a little bit about another Australopithecine species found in South Africa. A. africanus. So instead of a Lucy species, this is a younger species. Um, and it's also found in a different region. So this species, A. africanus, lived between 2.7 and 2.3 million years ago. So can you tell us, Bill, a little bit about um, A. africanus and how they differ from Lucy's, the Lucy's species? And then can you also tell us if Africanus could have evolved from the Lucy species, from Afarensis? Yeah. The last part there is could could Africa is it is it likely that Africanus evolved from something like Afarensis? The answer is yes. Okay. The anatomical differences are easy to see, but there's nothing in them that would say that Africanus can't make a decent descendant of something like Lucy's species. Uh, it may not have been direct. After all, one is in East Africa, one is in South Africa. Um, we don't know what the migratory patterns would have been like. And Bill, are there any older ones than Africanus in South Africa? That I was no, unclear on. No, Africanus is the oldest at yeah. the moment. Mm. So yeah. you could imagine something evolving in East Africa and perhaps if Lucy's walking and they're moving around that species, perhaps something evolved further south and changed who knows yeah there are a variety of potential scenarios uh, one of which is that something uh, like an afarensis something like afarensis doesn't have to be afarensis itself but something like afarensis in eastern africa had a southern a southernmost uh, boundary to its range maybe it was in southern tanzania maybe it was in what is to let today malawi Mm-hmm. or even Mozambique, uh, places that we don't uh, know much about. Right. But it's right. not inconceivable that it's certain ecological conditions along the, the southeastern coastline and inland from there may have been habitable. I mean, their rift, you know, rifting extends down into Malawi, well into Malawi and, and, and towards Mozambique. Um, there could be fossils down there that, that might represent a, a southern extension of, uh, of an Afarensis range, in which case one of those populations down there may have given rise to, to Africanus in South Africa. Um, that seems to be the most likely scenario since Afarensis is older, mm-hmm. it's more primitive, uh, that is to say more ape-like than Africanus uh, in various parts of its skull and skeleton. And, um, and, um, and could have represented the ancestral condition for for southern african australopithecus there are a variety of differences there's no mistaking the two uh but of all the australopithecus species in the fossil record um these two probably yeah i would say these two are probably most similar anatomically and also because they they come close to overlapping in age uh, albeit one is entirely in South Africa, one is entirely in East Africa. Uh, and, and that's where, as I indicated earlier, this is a common pattern. You see a lot of, uh, and what's biogeographers would call endemism. That is to say, a species unique to one region relative to a, a neighboring region. And, and South and East Africa was very much like this throughout this time period. Um, there were, and so, and so, there may have been links 
from time to time between the two, and 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 one of those links gave rise to uh, to Australopithecus africanus, South Africa. Okay, we're going to take a quick station break before we get to our, our next question. You're listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Nancy Mahoney and Crystal Alegria. We're speaking today with Dr. Bill Kimball about his research on human origins between 2.5 and 4 million years ago, during which our own genus Homo emerged from smaller-brained ancestors. Um, So I want to switch now over to talking about our genus Homo and talk about that very recent and exciting discovery um, that uh, came out from the IHO team. Um, one of my friends when I was in graduate school there, Brian Vilmore, was on that team, and he's a co-author with you on the on the paper. The jaw was found in 2013 and published in 2015, and it is a part of a jaw, about a half of a, a lower um, mandible, found at Lady Gararu in Ethiopia, deposits dated 2.75, 2.8 million years ago. Um, so tell us about that, how you knew it was the genus Homo. This is considerably older um, than some of the other fossils that have been attributed to, to Homo that we have had up until this point. So it's it's putting a data point into what you've called this, this gap kind of between these Australopithecines and the evolution of our genus Homo. So this is starting to get into the area where maybe some dots are connected. So tell us a little bit about this. So this is the project that um, was run in 2013 and back into the, uh, you know, many years into the early part of, of the uh, 2000s by my uh, IHO uh, ASU colleague, Kay Reed, uh, who, who, uh, with whom I've worked for, for a long period of time. And uh, Kay's uh, a leading idea to go visit this site of Lady Gararu was the hunch, which turned out to be correct, um, that the age of the sediments at that site would uh, be younger than those at the Lucy site of Hadar, which from the uh, which top out the Australopithecus bearing portion of the rocks at Hadar top out at about 3 million. We want to know what happened to uh, Lucy species. Did it did it live longer? Did it give rise to some of the other species that we've been talking about, like the robust Australopithecus or Australopithecus africanus? What happened to it? And 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 Kay's and her team's hunch was correct. The rocks uh, range there. They they do overlap a little bit with some of the younger rocks at Hadar, and then they go younger. And um, uh, and. Uh, 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 I don't, and no one was looking for for early Homo per se uh, back at 2.8 million. Um, no one knew how far back the genus went. The time period, the critical point here is the time period between 3 million and 2 million in Eastern Africa is very poorly known. You know, we know a fair amount from 2 million younger. We know a great deal because of afarensis, 3 million and older. But between two and three, we know lots of interesting things happen. Between two and three, the genus Homo arises. The robust Australopiths evolve. Uh, uh, Australopithecus afarensis uh, becomes extinct at some point. Lots of action in that two, evolutionary action in that two to three million year time period. So it was fortuitous that that um, that the rocks at Lady Gararu span that critical point in time so the first step the first step for your for your research with Kay reed Kay's research was to actually find deposits exposed in some of these rift valley areas that you could independently date and then hope that if you kept searching 
you'd find not just fauna but but hominin fossils. Yeah. Yeah. And and in, indeed that has that that has happened. So in 2013, um, Ethiopian colleague of ours working with uh, with with Kay, a P- Ethiopian PhD student, in fact, got his PhD last year with us at ASU, found this uh, this lower jaw at the top of the hill, had wow. just freshly eroded out of the sediments. That must have been and amazing. The the, yeah. the 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 layer from which the jaw had come was a few meters above exposed at the base of the hill of volcanic ash that had been dated to about um, a 2.8 million. Wow. So it was a little younger than 2.8. So it's maybe, you know, eight or nine meters above the, the, the dated ash. So it's a little bit younger than 2.8. Call it 275 to 28. And um, half a jaw with a bunch of teeth in it. Fortunately, the break through the jaw included the, the, the midsection so it was easy then using a proverbial mirror, you know, digital mirror to flip the, the jaw to the other side and create an entire dental arch mm-hmm. because it had the, the midline and of course the mandible is symmetrical. So, so we, we were able to recreate the entire uh, dental arch from the, uh, from the specimen. And uh, uh, um, those of us who worked on the hominins, Brian Vilmore, you mentioned myself, uh, Chilacho, the, Ethiopian, then Ethiopian student, we discovered that um, there was a, uh, a pretty impressive but very subtle, uh, subtly expressed set of characteristics in this lower jaw and in the teeth that it carried um, that uh, were, that had exclusive similarities to jaws and teeth later in time that no one questions should be attributed to the genus Homo, Homo, yeah. Homo habilis, right. etc. Okay, I I have to say the article was pretty convincing because the diagrams you all have. I mean, I've I've looked at sort of the bottom arch shape, the two throws that they're more parallel, they're more ape-like, certain shapes, and and a Homo or any member of our genus, you know, the the shape of the the, the palate and the lower jaw, but then also the the angle of the the lower jawbone at the bottom of it whether it's yeah, it's, it's angling parallel. up or if it's parallel to the tooth row yeah. was um so it was really lovely just not having any experience looking at jaws but to so clearly see the similarities and the differences pointed out yeah. it definitely looked like yeah yeah I mean, so and 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 so this is a two call it 2.8 million year old jaw that shows to us pretty clear pattern of similarities in the details of the jaw and tooth structure to to jaws of later homo species like so this to us signaled that um uh, that that the genus homo the homo lineage um goes back at least to 2.8 million Hmm. and uh but it's just one data point, you know, in, in a time period that's still quite empty. Um, and and so the jaw is suggestive uh, that, that the homo lineage goes back this far. Which species should the jaw be attributed to, we left unstated. Um, because of the time difference, the time difference between the Lady Guerrero jaw at 28 
and the comparisons we made to later Homo at 2,800,000 years. I mean, you need to be cautious mm. about assigning isolated fossils like this sitting in, a, in, in time um, to previously known species. And so there was not a definitive species designation given. It was assigned to the genus Homo species left unstated until further remains can be found and we get a more complete picture of what the anatomy of this uh, early representative of our own lineage looked like. This is going to be fascinating to see what comes out in that time period. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, like Nancy said, we've been reading the book Fossil Men, and I've been listening to it. Nice. (laughs) Which helps me pronounce all these things. (laughs) That's for sure. So so here, I'm going to try to pronounce one coming up. We'll see how I do. (laughs) Um, I don't know this this work like Nancy does. so, So this is a little bit newer to me, but so fascinating. So one of the main subjects of the book Fossil Men is the search for a fossil species closest to the split between human and chimpanzee ancestors really the very origins of bipedalism. The book focuses on the discovery and reconstruction of Artie, and um, Artie's full name is Artipithecus ramidus. How did I do? Ramidus. Ramidus, okay. Artipithecus ramidus, you did very well. Okay, good. But you both get it. And so we, we call that Artie for short, and Artie is a female, not a male. So when I first started hearing the name Artie, I just automatically, it sounds male, but it, but it is female. So, and Artie is a very complete skeleton or remarkably complete skeleton, which also comes from Ethiopia and dates to about 4.4 million years ago. So can you tell us a little bit about Artie and what she looks like and how they knew she was actually bipedal and really talk about her as an important piece of this puzzle? The importance of Artipithecus is that it shows what a transitional form looked like between an animal that spent time climbing in the trees and an animal that spent time walking bipedally on the ground. Mm-hmm. Earlier, when I talked about how we make inferences about anatomy and behavior in Afarensis, I said, well, we have humans on one side and we have chimpanzees on the other side for comparison and then we try to put the fossil species in between but there's a danger there and that's because lucy didn't evolve from a chimpanzee chimpanzees live today right with us right they're our closest living relative right we don't know exactly what the ape-like creature that lucy evolved from we substitute in or have substituted in chimpanzees because they're our closest living relative according to the DNA. Well, that's a different story than than deriving Lucy from something that looked and behaved on the landscape like a chimpanzee. Artipithecus makes it less appropriate, less necessary to employ chimpanzees as one end of the range of comparisons when we try to figure out the anatomy of early hominids. Yeah, tell us why. Because, because, that's because Artie, Artie doesn't look like a chimpanzee. Right. Yet, the anatomy of the feet and part of the pelvis and some other aspects of the skeleton show that Artie climbed in the trees. So, mm-hmm. for example, 
her feet featured a divergent first toe that was relatively short compared to the other toes and looks a lot like a foot of a climbing primate because other primates that use, you know, climb, use their feet like their hands and use the, the, the opposable toe to right. gra- grasp See- and grip and hang and so forth in the trees. There's also a part of the pelvis in Artipithecus called the ischium, which is the part of the pelvis that you sit on when you sit down, you sit on your, your ischium. And in, in, in climbing primates, the ischium is very long, which gives leverage to the hip muscles that are used in climbing in the trees. Mm-hmm. They're the same muscles, by the way, we use when we get up out of a chair and push up or climb steps or take off in a race from a crouched position. And like in the Olympics, for example, mm-hmm. and relay races, one up. Um, that part of Artie's pelvis was like that of a climbing primate, not like that of ours, which you know we rarely climb. We walk bipedally and our ischium is short. Mm. As is Lucy's, by the way, mm. okay, like yeah. humans. Mm. Yep. Right, so here comes the story, mm. right? So now we know what a creature that was, if not specifically, at least generally ancestral to Lucy looked like in terms of the anatomical features that from which we derive information about locomotion, right? So with Lucy, it's easy to see that she's a biped because of her pelvis and her foot and the footprints and like totally volcanic ashes, etc. But what we didn't know is, is, is from what form did Lucy's bipedalism derive? Right. Chimps don't tell us that. Chimps are entirely quadrupedal, except for the occasional bursts of bipedality when they're carrying things. Right, you know, which and they don't do it for very long or for very well. And they're or terrible well. waddlers. Mm-hmm. I know. They're, they're, so, they're inefficient. Right. Terribly inefficient bipeds. Right, right. So, so they. Um, and when you're pregnant, you sort of feel that. Yeah, way too. you kind of. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, not that you would know, but you know, I, I, I relate. I, I relate. I've heard stories. <laughs> so it's. Um, and that that's the thing. I mean, with Lucy, we see in that lower part, the lower part of her her spine into her pelvis, we see more things. But there are still enough aspects of of Artie to show that she was a right. very adept climber but that she was definitely spending some of her time walking so right. what are those so that's yeah. the other that's the the waiting for the other shoe to drop right so the so so the the great toe and the foot suggest climbing the elongated ischium of the pelvis good for the climbing muscle suggest climbing but the top part of the pelvis where the muscles that control our bipedalism at, at the hip joint looks very human-like, looks Lucy-like. Mm. And that's the pelvic blades, which contrast to that of a chimpanzee, say, are shorter, and they're rotated around to the side of the torso so that um, the action of the thigh is, is different. It, it supports a balance of the trunk over a bipedal set of legs. Yeah, because you're really walking on one leg at a time when you're bipedal. I remember learning how to teach about this. It it kind of had to be undone. You have to balance. So you have your femurs are angled in under, so your knees are underneath you. So you can tell by looking at the femur, but that pelvis has to become more basket-like. And so we see some of that... Uh, those things showing up. So she could have balanced and walked bipedally then. That's a good way to put it. The pelvis looks more basket-like, like like in Lucy and humans. 
and 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 much less like what we see in, in chimpanzees who who are terrible bipeds. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so so from the point of view of the pelvis, you see a mixed signal in terms of locomotion. And there are other features of the feet that suggest that in, in part the foot may have had a human-like pushing off role. I uh, am fascinated the by the part about the cuboid in this <laughs> book. I just got geeked out by this sesamoid that's embedded in a tendon that rubs and creates a facet. And he was basically saying all monkeys have the sesamoid and this kind of thing. And they have big ones and baboons and they're running around on the savannas all the time. And it almost seemed to say that just like you said, the midfoot is a little longer and stiffer. So it's in monkeys, certain monkeys and in humans. So it's less hand-like and that it could have been that that was actually a more ancestral rather than, and then the chimpanzee really hand-like thing that we had been assuming was ancestral was maybe a much more derived trait in a- Or specialized. Or specialized trait in a, yeah. So one of the major take-home messages of Artipithecus is, and and this is, by the way, a subject of debate uh, as as we speak. This is, the, the story is not done yet on this. Okay. But the, the, there are, there are set, a number of people, most of whom were involved in the early uh, dis- analysis of the Arty remains, who see very, to the extent that the Artipithecus anatomy looks like that of other primates, not like humans, they, they don't see any characteristics or very few characteristics that suggest the type of locomotion practiced by chimpanzees today chimpanzees are very efficient climbers and they engage in a type of posture in the trees called um, orthograde suspension and if you want to see a good example of orthograde suspension just go look at gibbons in the zoo these are animals that ricochet around hanging from below the branches Mm -hmm. with their arms and then using their legs to, 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 to go from one place to the other and then swing up with their arms this is a variant of what chimpanzees and other animals like orangutans who right. do the same type of thing, much larger bodies, but they do the same type of thing. A lot of suspension below the branches that they're clinging to. This is characteristic of all of the great apes plus gibbons. And everybody thought, well, because it's characteristic of all of those guys, it must be the condition from which we evolved, right? From an ancestor shared with the chimpanzee. Well, Artie, according to its original uh, des- describers, the, f- the, f- the discovery team, um, uh, found very few features in their analysis of the Artie skeleton to suggest affinities with any kind of locomotion like that. Instead, it appeared very much more monkey-like, like you just said, like more like clamoring on the tops of branches in mm-hmm. the trees like tree-dwelling monkeys do. So is that true of the shoulder area too then, Bill, that that doesn't look as much like what you'd find in a chimpanzee and orangutan, sort of where the way the arms suspend? Well, is the, the, ar- the, artipithecus, the artipithecus shoulder would have been um, capable of, of a fair uh, range of motion. Okay. But the posture of the hand mm. um, and other elements um, uh, don't seem to, to go along with it. So it's kind of a mosaic uh, of, of characteristics. Mm-hmm. There, there are characteristics that are clearly pointing in the direction of Lucy and later hominins in terms of terrestrial bipedality. 
there are characteristics that suggest life in the trees, at least insofar as the use of the grasping foot, for example. And then there's a host of other characteristics that don't resemble either humans or great apes that appear to be more, a little bit more monkey-like. And so, so the question is, yeah. so the question is, how do we put all this together to create a, 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 uh, a portrait of the locomotor behavior of this species? And the closest approximation um, comes from something like a, um, uh, a tree-dwelling monkey, although larger, a more great ape size, chimpanzee size, large chimpanzee size, but an animal that doesn't have the below branch suspensory adaptations that 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 living apes do like chimps so it becomes kind of a an amalgam of 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 characteristics from from different locomotor styles the important point and i should say that there are some papers coming out recently that are contesting this uh, interpretation and saying that actually in some respects the arty skeleton does look more like that of a, of a living great ape than had been thought originally. Uh, so there's a little bit of debate beginning to break out around this. doesn't matter in terms of how that debate turns out so much in relation to how important Artipithecus is for establishing a baseline for understanding how Lucy evolved her more human-like bipedal characteristics, right? right? We don't need to rely on chimpanzees anymore. Mm-hmm. to right. figure that out. And chimps weren't appropriate anyway, as I said earlier, we didn't evolve from chimps. So, right. so for the comparison, chimps never made a really outstanding example, but it was all we had. Right. Now, exactly. Artie and some of the other remains that go back into the what's called the late Miocene epoch towards the time that the DNA suggests the chimp and human lineage split six, seven million years ago, we're beginning to fill in some of the space there and stand to, her, to learn a lot more about the variety of locomotor patterns that existed at a time period that we had no idea about longer ago than a few years ago. Right? I, I and, just, yeah, it just freaks me out to think about all these different um, ape-like animals walking around on two feet at least part of the time. I just wish I could go back for an instant and <laughs> I know. see them. It's, you know we it's need our fascinating. time travel. I know, we know, do. We need our, we yeah. Really need, we I do know. need that. Yeah. <laughs> so were so you going to ask about, yeah. we, we're curious about, you know, chimpanzee ancestors. Mm-hmm. Um, and You have one? <laughs> <laughs> we don't talk about it. Um, no, we curious to know what we don't know about chimpanzee evolution and what those early ancestors of chimpanzees would have looked like as we're as we're finding fossils of um, that are on the the human side of that split. Side, what but, do we have yeah. anything on the other side? You know, from a million back to seven million years ago, or is it is it a factor of preservation that we just don't know? It's a factor of preservation, of course. Mm-hmm there were populations of chimpanzee relatives and ancestors going all the way back to the split, just as, uh, as there have been relatives and ancestors discovered on our side of the split, including Lucy, Artie, and robust Australopithecus, early Homo, etc. The reason we don't have anything of the chimpanzee lineage is because chimpanzees have tended to live in relatively closed, um, wooded conditions and there's no 
sedimentation. Uh, there are no sediments being formed in which chimpanzee bodies can be... So they don't fossilize. They don't fossilize. They're not preserved, and they're not. There's not nothing to. There, there are no. There are no sediments there. Um, you know, you go in the forest. You've got yeah. trees. You've got vegetation, and there's the amount of sedimentation that goes on in these conditions is minimal. Uh, and so there, there are no. There are no going back in time in the forested communities. There are no sediments underneath the. Uh, the landscape in which you would expect to find uh, fossils because they're, right. the bones aren't being fossilized. Right. There's I no think, sedimentation there. Yeah. So, so, so now there are a couple of exceptions. There were some teeth found some years ago in, um, I'm going to say Kenya, and I could be wrong about that, but I think Kenya, um, in the, uh, in the uh, middle Pleistocene, as I recall correctly, they're about half a million years old. And of course that, now you're talking about you know, Homo erectus, Homo heidelbergensis right. time in Africa. And um, these teeth look an awful lot like chimpanzee teeth or incisors. And uh, chimpanzee incisors, as you may know, are very characteristic. They're very broad, like spatulas. And um, they're, they're very easy to recognize. Among great ape incisors, including human incisors, the chimp incisors are pretty easy to recognize. And these fossil teeth from about half a million look very chimpanzee-like. So happens that the site where uh, the teeth were found is reconstructed as being a fairly open environment, not surprisingly, given the fact it's in, in the east, in the Rift Valley. So it could be that at certain points during the Pleistocene, there were chimpanzees who were adapted to fairly open conditions. Uh, apes don't like, apes like trees, apes like woods, apes don't like you know, right. open conditions. Yeah. So this may have been a population or a, even a species of chimpanzee. We don't, you know, an extinct species of chimpanzee that mm -hmm. became somewhat adapted to more open conditions or like the savannah chimpanzees I was talking about earlier was traversing a relatively open environment and was actually living and feeding in a, right. around and around. Right, just died zone. there. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. But, um, but the point being that, um, is, is that this is a this is a one-off this is a, an unexpected discovery because the, the every likelihood is is that the chimpanzee fossil record uh, will not be found because it was never formed in the first place simply because where chimpanzees tend to live is not where um, sediments accumulate that would mm -hmm. uh, be conducive to the present to the burial and preservation of bones as is the case for example in the East African Rift Valley the rivers and the lakes right. and so forth right. or in the case of south africa where where bones are being accumulated in these underground caverns by being washed into openings to the surface um, along with everything else in the vicinity so right. so um it's a tough problem i mean you know every all all the other evidence suggests that humans and chimpanzees shared a common ancestor and we have species that are getting very close to that common ancestor on our side of the split to find them on the other side of the split, not impossible, but it will be a challenge on the assumption that through much of chimpanzee evolution, they tended to, to prefer these woodland forested conditions. Right. I think it's interesting because I think it unfortunately contributes to these mistaken ideas that we evolved from those kinds of right. apes. So it, it'll be interesting, but it's one of those things I, um, whenever I'm teaching or talking about it, I... I 
there has to be a better way to make the explanation. Mm-hmm. And Artipithecus does kind of get us closer to having that thing to point to. Um, so, Bill, we have like 10 more questions we'd love to ask you, but we're we're pretty much out of time. <laughs> so <laughs> we have taken up enough of your time, and we, we've just had so much fun and learned a lot. Um, and I'm so grateful you've been able to, at the end of your busy semester, uh, take time to do this with us. Um, then I'll just it's finish my, with... my pleasure. Well, thank you. And, and yeah. just tell us... Um, I mean, you guys, you guys have a lot to figure out still. I'm just going to say that. And I'm super excited. But but tell us what it is that you're most interested in, in focusing in on um, in the next few years with research. What do you think is going to be the most um, exciting or productive period or place? From my own, from the perspective of my own research agenda, I think the time period between two and three million mm-hmm. is, a, is a frontier that we need to uh, push push at and make more progress on. Um, there is so much evolution. The, 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 the existing fossil and archaeological records from this period of time suggest that it was a, a tremendously dynamic period uh, in human evolution, in part because the records of global climate change suggest that it was also a time of, of, of great uh, environmental shifts in Africa, Europe, Asia, and elsewhere. Uh, now, species don't adapt to climate. They adapt to local environmental conditions. So it's one thing to go from global climate change, then to local environmental right. implications, and right. then to understanding what the plant and animal communities were responding to locally. Um, and that's a tough job. Um, but the, the the global climate record younger than three million does suggest that there was a a period of, of great change. Uh, cli- uh, climates became cooler, continents dried out, uh, uh, plant communities changed, animal communities changed, and the hominins changed. But we don't have a rich record of hominins from this time period. So we have a few. We have the early Homo from Lady Gerardo. We have uh, early robust Australopithecus from, from Kenya and Tanzania and, and, and some other places. We eventually see Homo again around 2.3, 2.4, leading up to, when we know it best, around 2 million in places like Turkana and Old White Gorge, etc. But between Afarensis and Homo habilis, Homo erectus, at 2 million, and we so much happens. Of, These brains get bigger. They leave Africa. And then in South Africa, you got utter craziness going on. You got Sediba, which you have once said might look like it belongs in Monty Python's Ministry of Silly Walks with its. <laughs> I just wanted to get that in there. You've been doing your homework. I did my homework, Bill. I did. And, um, Nancy, and then. I just have to say, Nancy loves this stuff. I do. I'm total geek about <laughs> she it. She is. And. Um, and Naledi, which is you know the bizarre. Sketch, by the way, what's that? You know the sketch, the Ministry of Silly Walks. I I need to go look it up. Um, oh, our uh, Steve right here, who's recording and editing us, does know it. So he'll it's on. It's on, uh, it's on YouTube. Okay, that's good. That's good. But it's, as you described it, I thought, oh, that is not in the textbooks that I was assigning my students. So I'm missing out on that for sure. But I have to go figure that out because I like to demonstrate these things when I can. Um, so in any event, um, I, there's crazy things coming out of South Africa that I know are, are also going to be 
looked at and relooked at. And I know you've also had some looks, but it it's sounding to me like we're expecting that our genus really evolves more in East Africa. And I don't know if that's something we can say for sure, but it just seems like we're finding something older there that looks like Homo rather than in South the Africa. Bits of the, 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 the bits of fossil evidence we have from East Africa, say between 2.3 and 2.8, point to later homo okay point to later homo at the same time period we have a africanus in south africa which i thought that was going to be the ancestor well, of us all and well, i there are some features in a africanus that do look a little bit more like later species of homo than say lucy species does but it's but but overall the anatomy of Australopithecus africanus doesn't seem to signal later developments in the Homo lineage the way these pieces from East Africa do during the same period of time two eight to two three right africanus seems to be sitting there doing its own thing it doesn't seem to be signaling to us a very clear pattern of ancestry to later species the the fossils from east africa although they are scrappier and much many fewer in number do seem to suggest that now maybe we're fooling ourselves and it's simply a matter that we've got you know a few jaws and teeth from east africa and we're misreading them i don't think so but the sample size is still small and there's still vast stretches of time and space in Eastern Africa between three and 2 million that we know very little about. And we now so know that, that, to me, yeah. that to me is the challenge is to figure out what happens to Lucy. How does Lucy relate to early homo? Where did the robust Australopith species, Boisei, robustus? And what happened if they got a cavity in those giant molars? My (laughs) God, it keeps me up at night. But Bill, also we know that, you know, we got Neanderthals and humans that can share genes. I mean, all of these questions become so much even more interesting that you're just asking when we realize you could have Africanus um, even contributing some genes if there was interaction. You know, it's, it's... those species, those species lines are not necessarily hard and fast, but well, we yeah. could get into a discussion of the difference between, um, which I don't want to do, but we could get into the difference between interbreeding on one hand and the pre- the presence of interbreeding on one hand, and the absence of reproductive isolation on the other. Okay, that's a whole presence, other podcast. That's yeah, a whole other. Sure, I'm presence, having trouble getting my my brain around that without a glass of wine. So, okay, okay, I'll think about go, that. We won't go there. Okay, There's another, a time. another time. Another <laughs> time. Yeah. Okay. Well, this has been so great, and I've learned so much. You know, all week Nancy was sending me articles to read, so my knowledge on this <laughs> has Nancy's just get a life. Yeah. <laughs> but it's been so fascinating so thanks so much um bill for your for your information today and also your time i i hope it uh it it gets the interest of your listeners oh please and please share this around um we're excited to have someone of your stature on here and we're we're thrilled because i I have created a lot of other mini um geeks like myself in my classes so i know they'll be listening so this is great
Yeah. Correct. Well, thanks, Dr. Kimmel. We're so grateful for you for taking the time. And to all of our listeners out there, thanks so much for joining us today. And we hope you can join us again next time to find out more about the, the dirt, dirt on, on the, the past. past. And if you're enjoying the dirt on the past, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Also, please tell your friends and leave us a review. It really helps people find us. We're a new podcast and we're trying to grow our listener base. So please share. Thanks. And thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past.